invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at chapter 2 as you're doing that. Just uh, want to say how great it is to um, just seeing faces I haven't seen for a while. It almost has a biblical feel to it when the Bible talks about God says, I will gather them from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will all come and be my people. And One people, one place under one Lord. It's just great to see uh, folks. Uh, I know you've been scattered around and... Um, it's good to see you all here again as we open God's Word together. And let's do that. Galatians chapter 2, if you remember, it's a letter Paul is writing uh, because he's deeply distressed. Uh, some false teachers have, uh, have uh, infiltrated churches that Paul had planted and are suggesting a different gospel. And Paul has been defending his apostleship and the authenticity of his gospel, of his gospel message in chapter 1 and continuing that in chapter 2. So let's pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 1. And we are going to read um, through verse 16. Paul writes, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is just, not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by, the works, by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you're the God who speaks this word, and you are the God who, by the Holy Spirit, um, opens our eyes 
and our hearts to understand it and to receive spiritual food and drink from it. And Lord, we pray that be the case again today for your name's sake. Amen. Well, this is an interesting text, and maybe the first uh, question, or one of the questions that might come to your mind as you read this is, uh, so what? Uh, Why does this really matter, what Paul did and who he talked to and and what they said to him? Well, let me try to help by giving you an illustration. Just uh, imagine going to a garage sale and uh, finding a beautiful painting there by a well-known artist, and it was being sold for 30 bucks. And uh, you're a bit of an art buff, Uh, you don't like to brag, but you know a thing or two, and uh, you quickly could tell that this was an original painting and worth quite a bit of money. But the homeowner was apparently clueless to uh, what they had here, and and so they just put the little piece of tape on it, said 30 bucks, and and, uh, so you you paid your money, and the the owner uh, thankfully took it, and you excitedly took your new treasure home. And you did a little more research on it, and you estimated, uh, rough guess, it's probably worth about uh, $100,000. That was just your guess. So you proudly displayed it in the living room, and, and when guests would come, you, you maybe would, uh, you know, hope they would notice. And, and, and when someone said, wow, is, is that a genuine Chagall? You would smile demurely and say, yeah, I, I found it at a garage sale, $30. And uh, when they said, how much is it worth? Well, I, I don't know exactly, 100000 more or less. It was a fun story. Uh, and, uh, but you, uh, one day the Antique Roadshow came into town. You decided to uh, find out exactly what it was worth. And so you, you, you took it in uh, to get a professional appraisal. And you showed it to the man there and explained how you found it. And you couldn't wait to have him tell you what an incredible find it really was and, and, uh, and then to astonish you by naming a value much higher than you had even uh, dared to hope. But that's not what happened. He, uh, he assured you it was a beautiful piece, uh, but then said, unfortunately, uh, this is not authentic. It's not an original. It's a knockoff. And he showed you the tiny but irrefutable evidences that this was, uh, in fact, um, not what you hoped it was. It was a well-done fake. And he told you that it was worth uh, approximately what you paid for it at the garage uh, sale. Well, that would be a devastating experience. Uh, But what if the painting was the gospel? What if um, you had discovered the gospel truth and, and you couldn't believe how precious it was, how valuable it was, how good this news really wasn't. And you excitedly took it home with you and you happily told other people about it. This is the best thing that, that had ever happened to you and, and, uh, and you were so thrilled with your new discovery. But then one day, someone explained to you that the gospel you loved wasn't really authentic. It was close, but it was a knockoff. The good news that you had believed wasn't in fact true and it wasn't nearly as valuable as you had hoped. That's what's on the line uh, in the churches of Galatia. That's what's on the line in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, Is the gospel proclaimed by Paul the real deal or a close imitation, but vastly less valuable? The false teachers were suggesting the latter. They they were teaching that Paul's gospel was fine as far as it went, but it it lacked um, the approval of Peter, James, and John, the real apostles down in Jerusalem. 
And so Paul is writing this letter. He's not just defending himself. He's battling for the true gospel, which is in, in infinitely valuable and worthy. And, he, and he's, he's fighting against a false gospel, which just puts people back in bondage. Bondage to doing the best that you can do. Because you see, these false teachers are, are, are saying that in order to be a Christian, if you're a Gentile, in order to be a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. That in order to re- receive um, the grace of the gospel, you have to first submit to the law of Moses. And, uh, and Paul's going to show that that eviscerates the whole thing. The problem is that, is that it's, they seem to be right. The Jewish portion of the church is following after them. Peter himself is going along with this. Peter seems to be affirming their message. So what is Paul going to do? Well, he assures them uh, of the authenticity of his, his gospel, first by telling them of an apostolic consultation, and then telling them about an apostolic confrontation. And both these things show the truth of his message. So first of all, an apostolic consultation. Paul writes in the first few verses here of chapter 2, tells them about a trip he took to Jerusalem. This is 14 years after he had uh, been converted and began his ministry. He went to meet with the apostles uh, in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. You'll see the word Cephas mentioned here. It's just another, uh, it's it's Peter's um, other name. It's his his, uh, Greek name. So he goes to uh, set before set before them the gospel that he was proclaiming among the Gentiles. That's verse two. But Paul didn't go and just tell them about the gospel he was proclaiming. He took a, a uh, an illustration along with him. Titus, a Gentile, who professed to be a Christian. It was a very bold move. Uh, Titus is the litmus test. Would the apostles, all of them Jewish, Peter, James, and John, would they accept Titus as a full, spirit-filled, loved by God, saved by Jesus, brother in the Lord? Or would they say, Titus, it's so good you're here. There's just one little thing we need to ask. You need to be circumcised and agree to submit to the law of Moses. So which gospel would the apostles affirm? Would it be the one where you're actually saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? Or would it be a gospel where you're saved by grace uh, and then your participation in submitting to and obeying the law of Moses? Which, which gospel is the true one? And it was quite a debate. Paul says that there were brothers there, false brothers he calls them, who had secretly uh, slipped in to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ so they might bring us into slavery. Verse 4. It, just, it shows you how Paul thought about a Christian. When Paul um, thought of a Christian man or woman, he thought of a free person, a person who'd been set free from bondage, bondage to the law, bondage to the, 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 the wrath of God, bondage to the curse uh, of sin and death and hell, that a Christian was done with all that and had been set free in Jesus Christ that all the blessings of God were freely poured out in this person for no other reason than the grace that comes through Jesus. And so when he saw these false brothers 
trying to impose the Mosaic law on Gentile believers as necessary to being made right with God, it infuriated him. They, he saw them as trying to enslave with the law those whom Christ had set free by grace. That's why he writes with some energy, some zeal and some heat. So what does Paul do with these spies? Well, he says, verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul says, we didn't give them an inch. There's no via media. There's no middle ground. There's no place to compromise here. Why not? Why is Paul being so stubborn on this? Well, he tells us, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, Paul saw the issue for what it was. This is a battle for the truth of the gospel. To compel Gentile believers to be circumcised eviscerates the gospel. It's a denial of the gospel of grace. The true gospel teaches that sinners, both Jew and Greek, are saved and made right with God by grace and faith alone, not by works. And to introduce, then, the requirements of the Mosaic Law in, into that equation was to destroy the pure gospel of salvation by grace. It's no longer good news. It's just more things you need to do. Well, happily, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem agreed. So we're told in verse 2, they did not require Titus to be circumcised. Verse 6, they added nothing to my message. Verse 9, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so Paul shows that um, there is no wedge to be driven between Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter, James, and John. They're on the same page. They're proclaiming the, the exact same message. It's a tremendous victory, in a sense, for the gospel as the apostles are shown to be of one mind. And it's a direct refutation to the false teachers who are suggesting that Paul is preaching a cheap imitation, a knockoff of the real thing. But that doesn't mean that these false teachers uh, quit. They didn't go away. It's so often the case. Um, the false teachers, even when they are defeated and refuted, just carry on. And that brings us to verse 11, verses 11 through 14 an apostolic confrontation. It's a really stunning moment in the history of the church, particularly the early church. Uh, just imagine if uh, you were a small, fledgling uh, uh, church been planted maybe by two co-pastors, and, and uh, one day in church, um, a, 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 just a huge debate and argument arose between the two, and, and you're sitting there, and here's the two pastors just having at it. Now, that would be a little disconcerting. Well, imagine here you have two apostles, the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter, the towering right, titans of the early church, and one, the apostle Paul, is publicly rebuking and chastising the other, the apostle Peter, in direct public open confrontation. So we just learned that when Paul went to Jerusalem, Peter gave him the right hand of fellowship. When Peter visited Antioch, Paul gave him a slap alongside the head. A public rebuke. So, what's going on? Well, this is what's going on. Notice first Peter's part. 
When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 11, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Uh, Paul explains that Peter at one time had no problem eating with Gentile believers. Now, that might seem um, not like, a, like, like not a very big deal to you, but it is tremendously significant in the early church. Remember, one of the strongest Jewish taboos, things that you could not do, uh, was to eat with Gentiles. To eat with Gentiles, uh, Gentiles were considered ceremonially or spiritually unclean. And to eat with them would be to condone their lifestyle, to condone their, their uh, life outside of um, the law of Moses and the covenant community. And so to, to eat with Gentiles, made your, you made yourself unclean. Uh, you just didn't do that. Not if you were serious about God, not if you were serious about the law. But you see, the gospel had broken that barrier down. Peter understood the, the barrier had broken down. God had told him that very clearly in the vision that you can read about in Acts chapter 10. If you remember the story, uh, boys and girls, you remember the story about this big uh, sheet being let, let down from heaven, and there's animals of every kind, and, and a voice says, Peter, kill and eat. And there are unclean animals on, uh, on that sheet. There are pigs. And the law of Moses forbid the Jews from eating pigs. And Peter says, well, of course not, Lord. I'm not, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, Jesus says, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. And then Jesus sends him to Cornelius, the Gentile, to his house to speak the gospel to him. And Cornelius, the Gentile, gets saved, full of the Holy, filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter understands that God, Jesus wasn't talking about animals, he was talking about people. Don't call unclean those whom I've made clean. The gospel is this wonderful news that, that Jews and Gentiles alike are by nature thoroughly unclean. No one does any good that is meritoriously good before the eyes of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are unclean, but in the gospel, sinners, no matter what uh, a brand, no matter what their situation or station in life, can be made fully, thoroughly, and eternally clean. And don't you dare call those that God has made clean, unclean. And so Peter ate with the Gentiles. And it was a wonderful testimony to the power of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Jewish people would say, Peter, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? They're not clean. And Peter would say, I promise you, I'm not clean either. Not in myself. But Jesus has made us clean. And we're eating together to celebrate the truth of what God has done for sinners like us. So why did he stop? Did he have a change of mind? Did he have a new revelation that, that explained that uh, he had gone too far in this thing? Well, nothing like that at all. Uh, Paul tells us why he stopped. He stopped because these false teachers came up from Jerusalem saying they were from James. James, in Acts 15, uh, denies that they came from him. But they had come up saying, listen, you're not Jewish but Christian. Don't you know the law of Moses? You, you can't eat with these people. And Peter, fearing that party, drew back. Now, it tells us something about Peter, um, something sad about Peter. Peter is a man who has a fear of man problem. 
this is the guy who, uh, when, a little, when a young girl um, said, aren't you one of uh, the Nazarenes? Aren't, aren't you a follower? Aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Peter denied it. He backed down from a, from a 13-year-old. He just couldn't go there. He fears what people think and what people will say. And remember, he is the, he's the apostle to the Jews. These are his people. So that when these false teachers come, it, it has a pull on his heart. And he's, he's nervous about losing the affirmation and the approval of the Jewish Christians. And so he draws back. Fearing the circumcision party. And not only that, but uh, his drawing back uh, was accompanied by the others drawing back. And even Barnabas, Paul says, all, verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their, their hypocrisy. So just think about what's going on in these churches. You have this, this very public, very evident, devastating division in the church led by the Apostle Paul. Suddenly, Jews and Gentiles are not eating together. And so the church is being ripped apart by this issue of eating. That was Peter's part. What's Paul's part? Verse 11, when, I, when Cephas came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. I listened to an excellent sermon on this uh, text by Stuart Olicott from England, and uh, he says what Paul did was precipitate a public showdown. The very thing that Christians today would like to avoid at all costs is precisely what Paul chose to do. He chose to have a public showdown because Peter was in the wrong. Uh, we live in a postmodern culture where you're not supposed to say people are wrong. It's not, it's not kind. It's not correct. Well, uh, Paul is very clear. Peter was in the wrong. Peter stood condemned. Verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, uh, to Cephas before them all, that's Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? The core issue for Paul, for Paul is that Peter and Barnabas and the others who are going along this path are not living in step with the gospel. Now there's an important distinction to be made here that Paul is not charging Peter with proclaiming a different gospel. Remember in chapter 1, Paul says, if anyone comes to you proclaiming a gospel different than the one that, that we proclaimed, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. But Peter is not proclaiming, he's not preaching a different gospel. The problem is that he is not living in step with the gospel that he is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the true gospel. He believes the true gospel. Peter believes that men and women are made right with God, not by works, but by grace alone and through faith alone. He believes that. The problem is he's not living like that. His actions are denying what he is uh, affirming and proclaiming. That's, that's why Paul labels his actions hypocrisy. You say one thing and you do something else. That's hypocrisy. Well, unfortunately, that hypocrisy um, has been part of our history as a church. Uh, we all know what, it, what it's like to say one thing and then do another thing. 
Uh, but the church as a, as a whole can participate. One of the saddest things that can happen to a church is, is this kind of hypocrisy where the church proclaims the true gospel, but then does not live in step with the true gospel. I think one of the saddest chapters in the history of the American church particularly is the way that white Christians treated their black brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Particularly in the South. I remember talking to an, old, an elderly OPC a pastor who's, 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 uh, who's, who's passed away and gone home now. Um, but he was telling me about his childhood growing up in the Southern Presbyterian Church. And with great remorse, just saying... Um, how the blacks, Christians, were required to sit in the balcony. They were not allowed on the main floor. They were not allowed to use the same restroom as uh, the white Christians. They were not allowed to drink out of the same drinking fountains. There were slave owners, or at least people, not slave owners at that time anymore, but, but people who, who uh, were still in that culture, that racist culture, as, uh, as, as members and elders of the church. So just think about what this means. This means that you, you go to church on a Sunday morning, and... Uh, this is a Reformed and Presbyterian church where everybody's singing out of the same old blue Trinity hymnal. Everybody is uh, subscribing to the same Westminster Confession of Faith. Everybody is saying the Apostles' Creed. Everyone professes the same gospel. But the white Christians are living publicly, hypocritically, in, re in, in regards to their black brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's just, that's just bold-faced hypocrisy where we, we profess that we're all one and then we're going to treat each other as though we're not one at all. We're all equal in Jesus, but we're going to treat each other like there's some vast differences. I just wanted to imagine, think of what suffering and pain could have been avoided if the elders of the church had, like the Apostle Paul, opposed this hypocritical behavior. If the elders of the church said, we're not going to do this. Think about back when slavery was still legal and if, and if elders in the church had simply began disciplining slave owners. An act of church discipline. You're not allowed to say this and then do this. They don't go together. Think of the testimony that could have been raised in the racist culture uh, of, of the power of the gospel and the blessings that could have flowed because uh, white believers were simply acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And friends, the same is true today, isn't it? In the sense that any conduct that draws lines between brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're racial lines or ethnic lines or uh, political lines or social economic class lines, when we, when we say, well, those people aren't like us, though they are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not walking in step with the gospel. We are acting hypocritically. That kind of behavior must be opposed because it's not according to the truth of, of the gospel. And that's what Paul does. We'll get to more of that in Galatians chapter 3, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. But let's, let's wrap with this. Why does this matter? What if Paul hadn't done anything? I mean, what would have been lost, really, if, if, um, if Paul had not raised this controversy? Well, there's two things that would have been lost. Uh, first would, the, the, the first thing that would have been lost is the gospel unity of the church. I mean, the church has been ripped apart by this. And so Paul ignites this controversy not to cause division, as I'm sure some would charge him, but to heal the division. If the teaching of these, of these Judaizers and if Peter's actions are left to stand, you have functionally 
Two different churches, the Jewish church and the Gentile church, both professing the same gospel, but treating each other, particularly Jews, treating the Gentiles as though they're less than, they're not worthy. They've not, they've not done what is re- required to actually be real Christians. So the church would have been devastated. Stuart Olicott again says, <clears throat> Paul stood against fellow believers, and if he had not done so, the fellowship of the Christian church would have been ruined. It is a lie to say that to stand against Christian believers is a breach of fellowship. The fact is, unless Paul had opposed them, the church would have been ripped in two. But because of Paul's courageous stand, the church was restored to the foundation of the true gospel. Sometimes unity takes conflict. And we must uh, be willing then, for Christ's sake and for the church's sake and for unity's sake, to speak the truth of the gospel. And that's the second thing. The truth of the gospel would have been lost. Yeah, Paul's convinced that's what's on the line here. And he, and he rebukes Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, that's the essence of the gospel. That's what makes it good news. Every other religion in the world is telling people, here, you just have to do these 10 things, and then after you've done them, you need to do them better. And you need to keep doing them. If you ever, if you ever want to be made right and, and, and save your soul, there, there, are, there are people who still today sacrifice their children in a desperate attempt to, to purify their guilty conscience. That's the devil's religion. The good news of the gospel is that all have sinned and fallen short, but that sinners can be justified, declared righteous and right with God, innocent before the court of heaven, not by their works, but by faith, which is just opening the, that you're, you're a beggar opening your hand and receiving what God freely gives. The gospel is a very simple message. There are just basic things that you need to know. You need to know the reality of sin and final judgment. You need to know that. You just need to know that you have sinned and there's coming a judgment day. And you're going to stand, whether you believe it or not, you will stand before the throne of God in heaven. You will. And you will give an answer, an account for your life. And you will be judged on that day guilty or innocent, and your eternal destiny depends on the verdict. If you're guilty, you will go to hell, whether you believe it or not. If you're innocent, you will go to heaven. You will go to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, and you will dwell with Jesus Christ forever. And it all depends on the verdict. The second thing you need to know is the futility of trusting in your works. We are by nature proud. We like to think there's something we could do. I've talked to people, and if I, when I ask them, when you stand before God, and he, uh, he says, why should I let you into my heaven, what will you say? It's a great question. And they say, well, um, I've done my best. Uh, or, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, I, um, you know, God knows my heart. He knows that I've been sincere. 
That answer particularly makes me tremble. Uh, God knows my heart is no comfort for me. And yet, um, that's the human bent, right? To Let's see what we can do. Surely this can't be that difficult. Well, the Bible says no one will be justified by the works of the law. No one, not a single person, will be able to come to heaven and say, here's what I've done. And God say, that's fantastic, innocent. It's not going to happen. It, it can't happen because of the, the, the reality of God's holiness and the reality of our sin. So that's the third thing you need to know, that the way to be uh, justified, the way to receive the verdict of innocent, and the only way is by confessing your sin and, and believing that Jesus Christ died for your sin. That's the only way. It's a very exclusive message. It's an offensive message in our world. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. This is the Christian message. The only way you can be saved is to be saved the gospel way. To be saved as a sinner who receives by faith through grace to receive the gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that Jesus offered up for you on the cross and sealed for you in his resurrection. That's the Christian truth. That's the gospel. That is what brings joy. We're done laboring and, and it, we're, we're, we're set free from this impossible bondage of trying to be good enough. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. But Jesus is great enough and gracious enough, even for you. That's the good news. And that, friends, is a gospel that is worth fighting for. Martin Luther fought this battle, as you know, in the Reformation. And he explains what was on the line. He says this, Let this be the conclusion of all together, that we will suffer our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have, but not the gospel. The faith, Jesus Christ, we will never allow these to be wrested from us. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. Let's fight for the gospel. But let's not just fight for the gospel. Let's walk in step with it. In other words, is the gospel that you proclaim and the gospel you believe, is it defining the life that you live? Or are you living hypocritically, saying you believe the gospel and yet living as though it weren't true. How would you do that? Let me just give you a few examples and we'll wrap up. Are you living in unconfessed sin? So you believe that Jesus died for sinners, and you, and you, you pro profess to be a sinner, but you're not confessing your sin. You believe that the only way to be saved is to come to Jesus Christ confessing your sin and, and casting yourself upon him, but you're not doing it. So you proclaim it intellectually, you believe it intellectually, but you're not confessing the truth about your life. There's secret, hidden sin that you've not told anyone about. That's living hypocritically. Are you living with grudges? Uh, with with uh, a refusal to forgive those who've sinned against you? Even though you profess that Jesus Christ died to forgive us and we're supposed to forgive as God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, you profess that to be true, but you're just not doing it. And so you're living not in the, in the love and the joy and the peace and the patience that comes from the gospel, but you're living in the bitterness and the anger and the anxiety and the unrest, the division that comes from sin. That is just, that's just not walking in step with the gospel. Is your gospel 
All right, we can say the gospel of God is the, is the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I love that saying, Romans 1, 16, 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But is it powerful enough to humble you? Is it powerful enough uh, when you're uh, in a dispute, uh, when you're in a fight with your spouse, when you're battling with your parents? Is the gospel strong enough to make you confess your need and your wrong and your sin? And break your proud heart? Is your gospel strong enough to comfort you when life is hard? Is your gospel strong enough to restore a broken relationship? You see, friends, the gospel that we have is the authentic gospel. It's the true gospel. It's the real thing. This text calls us to live like it. And I just pray the Holy Spirit would help you in your, in your very real circumstances to examine your heart, examine your life, the things that you fight for, the things that you get angry about, the things that you worry about, the things that you do, the things that you refuse to do, is the gospel defining your life. Let's pray it does. Amen. God in heaven, I thank you so much for this glorious gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. What a glorious, free gift we have in Jesus, all of our sin forgiven, all of the blessings of God freely given by grace alone. And Father, you know every person here this morning. You know, Lord, uh, most of us, if not all of us, um, we believe the gospel. We've heard it a thousand times. But Lord, every one of us in one way or another is not living in keeping with the gospel. In some way, we're living as though it were not true. And I pray that you would reveal, Lord, those ways to us that we might confess that sin and then experience the joy of forgiveness, the comfort of your love and grace, the peace that comes from knowing that we are loved, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church in these hard days to be people increasingly defined by the truth of the gospel. And, 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 and again, Lord, in every way that we're living contrary to that truth, may we repent. And give us, give us that grace, and we'll give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.